Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm glad that you are here. And uh, today is uh, uh, the last of our uh, classes on the Minor Prophets. And uh, just a reminder to everyone that uh, uh, next Sunday, September 5th, it should be, uh, will be a continental breakfast here. And I hope that uh, uh, we have a good... uh, a good continental breakfast, and then Scott will uh, uh, pick up and start teaching the book of John the week after that. Uh, I'm not sure if that... Uh, I was unable to open the bulletin for some reason with my uh, phone, so uh, that, that's probably in the bulletin, that uh, week after next we'll start with the book of John. So that means start reading the book of John. Um, and I was excited to read in the bulletin that there's... Uh, that uh, uh, Bob Lawrence is going to teach on uh, the Sermon on the Mount... And uh, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking that uh, uh, the best, uh, one of the best advertisements for the Sermon on the Mount is uh, the fact that at the end of it, after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of it, uh, Jesus said, uh, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them will be like, like uh, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And, you know, just before that, in the preceding little paragraph here, uh, he had said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Uh, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonderful uh, wonder works and uh, wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, which is terrifying, a terrifying passage. Uh, and then it's right after that that he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. He says these sayings, talking about all the things he just talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. But we know that uh, it also applies to all of his sayings throughout Scripture and then the things that he commanded uh, his disciples and the apostles to teach. Uh, so let's open up with a prayer as we... Uh, get ready to study Malachi here. Father in heaven, we take great comfort in knowing that you are our loving Father. Uh, We're thankful, Father, for this avenue, for the ability to speak to you directly, uh, individually and when we come together like this, 
And Father, we uh, are thankful that uh, you are watching uh, this world that we live in, that, uh, and we have to remind ourselves continuously that you are in charge, that you are in control and in charge, and and we struggle and we have some difficulty when we see terrible things happening in this world, even more so the closer they strike to home. And Father, we just pray that uh, that in the things that are going on that, uh, that we see and that we hear about at work and... Uh, that you're taking care of things, and we take great comfort in that. Uh, knowing that uh, you are our protector, and we pray your protection upon the men and women who have uh, dedicated their lives to the security of our freedoms in this country. Father, we pray that you'll be with the families and the loved ones of those who lost their lives in Afghanistan this week. Father, we pray that you will continue to protect and guide them and that you will restore peace to not only that country, Father, but throughout the world where your peace is needed, the peace beyond comprehension. Let us never neglect our responsibilities, Father, to to the spread of your word, to teaching your gospel, that, uh, that we're doing our part to make sure that the world knows Jesus and through him that they know your will, that that this world would live together in harmony. We pray for our studies today, Father, that you would uh, guide us uh, through your word and uh, help us to remember the things we talk about here today and to study further, to prove these things are so and to commit them to our hearts and that they might become so much a part of us, Father, our heart and our mind, that that your word appears in our speech in every conversation. Help us, Father, to uh, do our part to strengthen the body here, the church, that we might reach out to those around us and, and introduce them to Jesus and bring them to you through him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I struggle with dates a little bit. Uh, you know, time frames like uh, how long was it between this, this, what, this happened in the Bible and this. So, you know, uh, I read... Uh, couple different sources and see, see some things that are a little bit different, so I kind of average it out. Seems like it was about 10 years from the time that uh, uh, the uh, 
the things that occurred in Nehemiah happened between then and uh, and Malachi, uh, give or take. So I'll throw in the give or take. It might be give or take a lot, but it seems like it's about, about a decade. But to lay the foundation for Malachi, you have to remember what happened in Nehemiah. And I know it's been a couple of years since we've studied Nehemiah, so just a quick uh, run through back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, and a little heading in my Bible here says, Ezra reads the law. So Nehemiah chapter 8, when the seventh month came, the children... Now, uh, this was uh, uh, after uh, the remnant had returned to Israel and they have built and dedicated the temple. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. There's... A lot of evidence throughout Nehemiah that Nehemiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah were contemporaries. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all could, who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. A lot of emphasis on comprehension here. Uh, and we'll see that throughout this passage. They're reading um, the book of the law of Moses. And uh, uh, Nehemiah places a lot of emphasis on understanding, comprehension. Remember, it takes us back to Bloom's Cognitive Taxonomy, the the hierarchy of learning where you first ha- must have a knowledge base and then upon that you build comprehension and then application, right? They understood that. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood in which they made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mattitiah, Shimei, Ananiah, and several other people. And Ezra opened the book And verse 5, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And that is significant as well. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And, uh, you know, where the New Testament talks about where men everywhere lift up holy hands. And a brother asked me one time, what do you think that the Bible means there by lifting up holy hands? And my thought was, God usually says what he means. So I believe there that when God says lifting up their hands, he meant that they were lifting up their hands. That's just my opinion. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see the reverence, the same reverence that we saw in Genesis chapter 18 when the Lord came to Abram. Uh, and his reaction was his face hit the ground in front of the Lord. Uh, we know that uh, the uh, uh, the wise men that we call them in the Christmas stories, when the wise men uh, found the place where Jesus was born, that uh, they they was exceedingly great joy. And then when they entered into His presence, there was reverence, and they bowed to Him there also with great reverence. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Uh, fear, reverence, and joy, those things combined. The joy of having the opportunity, again, to hear the words from the book of the law of Moses. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions of those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 13, now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. They're on day two of this. When the book was opened, they stood up. And here they are going into the second day. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And it goes on to describe how as soon as he read the part where they were supposed to be in booths, at that time, they stopped reading and they went and they built the booths and they, they uh, dwelt in booths for a prescribed period of time. Uh, and it had been something like a thousand years before they realized that they, uh, that they, that they had forgotten that they were supposed to be doing that. And it's noteworthy uh, for us that they stopped studying that thing and they went and actually did it. So the reading of God's Word drove them to what we call, in our time, appropriate action. It's like you can spend your whole life studying something and never doing it. And we know that too. Uh, but the thing that really jumped out to me in chapter 8 here uh, is the emphasis put on understanding. And not only that, but their leaders helping them to understand and uh, in, in Zechariah, we had uh, studied where that communication style was more of a, uh, a compassionate and helping style of communication. I think that's what we're seeing here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Because back up in verse 3, it said, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of law. So they were paying attention. So that's a good sign. Good example for us. And down in verse 6, it says, And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They were reverent. And then in verse 8, at the very end of it, it says, And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So this is talking about, um, in verse 7, where it has that list of men, and then it says, And the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Verse 9 says, The Levites taught the people. And verse 10 at the end of it, it says, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then, finally, in verse 12, it says, They understood the words that were declared to them. So, you know, when you when when your wife cooks an excellent meal, uh, my favorite is when my wife cooks baked spaghetti. It's spectacular. She got it off Pinterest, right? But when she cooks that meal, there's a recipe that, that ends in a successful meal that I really enjoy so much. And so we see the recipe here for what they put together 
that culminated in verse 12 where it says, because they understood the words that were declared to them, and then they go on and they built a booth, and then uh, you have to look at uh, chapter 10 uh, to continue our laying of the foundation where the covenant was sealed. In chapter 10 and beginning uh, in verse 28 where it talks about the the obligations of the document uh, that they drafted, it says, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, uh, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, there it is again, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take the daughters for our sons. And it goes on to talk about how they would stop uh, doing labor on the Sabbath and disrespecting and disregarding the Sabbath that was holy. In verse 32, it says, We made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly a third, so they're going to restore the tithe that they were neglecting, that they, they had uh, abandoned. And down in verse 35, it says, We made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our grounds and the first fruits of all the fruits of our trees year by year to the house of the Lord. Uh, and then it goes on, and then down in verse uh, 37, it says, And to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And so it goes on, uh, and so this is kind of a <clears throat> a, uh, uh, a restoration. Uh, they're being restored in Nehemiah's time. And then it ends in the very last verse of chapter 10 saying, And we will not neglect the house of our God. You know, when I hear that, it kind of makes me think of Hebrews 10 there in 24 and 25, uh, one of those verses where it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We will not neglect the house of our God. And then uh, finally in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, on the day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. And jump down to verse 6 where it says, But during all this I was not in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Uh Uh-oh. So we've got some stuff going haywire here uh, not very long after that restoration we just read about in the previous chapter. And it grieved me bitterly, therefore, uh, it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work and had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. 
Verse 15 says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought. And I, I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. And then on verse 17 it says, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did your fathers not do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And then down in the middle of verse 19, Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. He's going to get physical with them about how they're going backwards. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And in verse 23, it says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there were no king like him who was loved of his God, And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joadiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I drove him from me. And then in verse 30, all this ends in Nehemiah with Nehemiah saying, Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. Remembering that what the prophet does is being done by God. What the, the God is working through the prophet in their communication with the people. The word of God comes through the prophet to the people. So God, in verse 30, thus I cleanse them from everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring in wood offering the first fruits of the appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And so he cleansed them from everything evil, everything pagan, it says there in verse 30. Then Malachi comes on the scene uh, about ten years later, uh, according to what I read. and finds in the short span of 10 years and remember uh, when Jonah preached cried out to the great city of Nineveh uh, it was about 100 years later that you you, uh, uh, read that they had I don't know what you want to call it backslid they had uh, uh, gone back to their, their wicked ways But here we're talking about 10 years. Malachi comes on the scene and finds cynicism, indifference, intermarriage, compromise, weak homes, divorce, failure to tithe, and something that we've been studying recently, apathy. 
an unconcerned kind of a spirit that darkened their nation once again. And so uh, uh, one preacher uh, once talked about how a friend of C.S. Lewis had traveled all over Europe and came back and said that he was very discouraged by the uh, uh, post, what he called uh, uh, the paganism. Uh, He says paganism, and then C.S. Lewis corrected him after he thought for a little while and said, it's not paganism that you're seeing, it's post-Christianity. What you're seeing is where it's uh, the same thing that we see here after this great revival and this great restoration uh, that uh, they had gone back away from God to their wicked ways. So what is today's equivalence of that? What would it be when uh, uh, when people backslide and fall away uh, post-Christianity, I guess? Uh, you might find yourself in a state of uh, post-Christianity. But we remember Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 through 6 where... For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. It is impossible for them, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Um, Sounds like God has a serious problem with that, and we should also. And then Hebrews 10 uh, and verse 26 and 27, we remember where it says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Um, and then it goes on to talk about how terrible it is to do that, how offensive that is to God. And we also remember in in, uh, Romans 6 where it starts off by saying, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? Uh, They had pledged their allegiance to God under Nehemiah's leadership. And now they were drifting and wandering again away from God. But before we're too harsh uh, and uh, too quick to judge the people of Nehemiah's time, uh, we need to examine the post-Christianity that we see around us, in our city, in our country. Uh, it, was, it was funny to me because I spent a lot of time out at the university working there for about a dozen years after I punched out of the Air Force uh, to, to hear and see what the young people around me were saying. Uh, and these are people who had, uh, uh, were in their you know, early 20s uh, mostly, uh, trying to find themselves uh, which is a terrible thing for a parent to encourage a child to do, right? Uh, they should only ever, ever be encouraged to just remain faithful all the time. And, and don't listen to this garbage about this and that, uh, movement away from God is a rite of passage. Uh, yeah. Uh, I can't find anything to support that in scripture. So these young people, um, very, very proud that they're atheists. And you can tell that they've studied it so they knew how to, what to say and how to, how to talk about how they didn't believe in God. Um, but 
those young people weren't very far removed from parents and grandparents who weren't atheists, uh, who were asking, seeking, and knocking. Um, and so you just pray for them that they'll get turned around. And so by way of self-examination, we look at ourselves and we look at those around us and we look at our country and we look at the world. And we might see what we think is the post-Christianity of uh, fill in the blank, you know, people, cities, countries, however you want to look at that. So in the book of Malachi, Malachi deals with uh, what uh, in the commentary said were uh, six sins. Um a six-point indictment of God's people, which comprises the main body of the book of Malachi. And the first sin, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and list all six of them here, and, and you're already familiar with these because you read, you read Malachi before the class. The first sin is doubting God's love. Their second sin was tolerating a polluted priesthood, a corrupted priesthood. Third, breaking their marriage vows. Uh, when, when I hear my brethren break anything in the Bible down to an acronym, I'm discouraged. Uh, and I, I encourage us not to do that. I was talking to a young preacher one time and, and, uh, at a coffee shop, and he said MDR. In the, just in the middle of a sentence, and we're going through this, talking about stuff for church and everything and our plans. And, and he said MDR, and I, I, I kind of he continued on, and I said, MDR, you lost me. And he said, oh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, so he kind of, he kind of, and, uh, I made it clear very quickly that, uh, that I was very uncomfortable taking anything so serious and su- such a holy institution and something that is spoken of throughout scripture and, and, and turning it into a, an acronym that, uh, I was just uncomfortable with that. It's not good. So the third sin was breaking their marriage vows. The fourth uh, was denying God's justice. The fifth one was disobeying God by withholding tithes and offerings. And the sixth one was questioning God's system of reward and punishment. And so let's get into this and talk about some of those, uh, see how far we get. Uh, so looking inwardly for cynicism. Uh, and it's good to hear about cynicism uh, in the family because cynicism is an attitude characterized by a general distrust of others' motives. That's what cynicism is. Um, so I've been studying a lot, uh, and, and I read and study my Bible all the time. But during this quarter, uh, for the past 12 weeks or whatever, I've been studying more. I get up every morning and study for about an hour before work, and then I have time in the evenings when, when there's energy remaining, and then mostly on Saturdays. I've spent the whole day on Saturday preparing these lessons throughout the summer. Um, and it would be easy for me, doing that throughout the summer, to look out among the audience and to think that I study my Bible more than any of you. So that attitude might come through this microphone, uh, that you need to study as much as I do, and so forth and so on. Uh, but it would be arrogant for me to assume that I know how much you study, or how much you pray, or whether uh, God's presence is, uh, is revered in your homes. 
uh, and that your family is indeed a faithful family of God. I can't make any assumptions about those things. We just encourage one another and encourage and encourage uh, one another closer and closer to God. And, you know, along with cynicism, which I said was an attitude characterized by a general distrust of others' motives, uh, you know, that, that reminds me of attribution. Uh, it was one of the concepts that we taught about uh, at the Academy in the Air Force where you observe a behavior in someone else and, and you attribute that to some motive. Uh, but it's better just to go on and talk to them and ask and find out, uh, you know, and... Uh, uh, and then to deal with the potential for dishonesty there. So it's complicated, but you always have to be careful saying, I know why that guy did that, right? I know how he thinks. I know what's in his heart. Only God knows the heart of man. There was skepticism in addition to the cynicism, apathy, a lack of zeal, laziness. They had problems with divorce, lack of reverence toward God, lack of devotion, a lack of commitment. These are the things that... Um, uh, that Malachi is dealing with. The people were in the midst of an economic depression. Crops were down. Parasites were destroying the plants and the fruit was bad. Their priests were so corrupt and immoral that a spirit of skepticism pervaded the people, the entire population. The people complained against God. They bemoaned their sad plight. They refused to pay their tithes and offerings. They were guilty of social injustices, and they had once again intermarried with the people of the land. Divorce was common. Malachi, as a prophet, was the preacher, and this was his congregation. Remember in the beginning we said that, yeah, prophets had prophetic things that they they spoke of in the future sense, but primarily they had a message for the people of their day. They were the preachers of their time. And God was speaking directly through them to the people. It was God's message being delivered. And that's what we read in the books that they've written. God's covenant had been forgotten once again. And a low type of behavior had become the norm. A low type of behavior had become the norm. Man, protect your children. Protect your children, where we're being raised in a world where uh, a low type of behavior is the norm. So ponder the value for just a moment that we, in our time, place on the following. Integrity. What kind of value do we put on integrity? Virtue. Moral excellence. Righteousness, goodness, obedience, unity. And how much value do we assign from our hearts to grace? And the grace that we're so blessed with that we don't deserve. And remember, it's not post-paganism. They're already past that. These people... During Malachi's time, for them, it was post-revival. They had already been revived. They know better than paganism. Israel was once again unfaithful. So things are not going well for them. And they ask, if God truly loves us, how can this be happening to us? 
Uh, and that's the first of eight sarcastic questions that we'll find in the book of Malachi. Uh, you can find them and circle those and highlight them, whatever, the eight sarcastic questions uh, that will help prevent us from, from ever asking sarcastic questions like that to God. But they ask that question in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? There's the first of eight sarcastic questions. And then he goes on to describe God's love for them and what he has done for them in the following verses through verse 5. Starts off by saying, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, and yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated? And he goes on and on and on to remind them what he had done for for them, which we covered uh, in one of the previous prophets. So Malachi describes God's love to them. And beginning with verse 6, he goes into a rebuke. Um... In verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Reverence, uh, respect, to fear, be afraid, and revere. Stand in awe. That's reverence. To have the deepest respect and honor. And there in verse 6, God says, Where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name. Um, and, and in verse, chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, uh, where he's talking about Levi. He says, My covenant was with him. And remember, the priests, they're Levitical priests. They are descendants of Levi, right? Uh, the tri- they're the tribe of Levi. And it says over here in chapter 1 and verse uh, six, uh, to you priests who despise my name. But when you look at, uh, where he's talking about Levi in chapter two and verse five, it says, my covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. So, that's a contrast, reminding them of, hey, remember who you are. Remember who you are and who you belong to. And in verse 7, you see disobedience. In verse 6, there was a lack of reverence and respect for God. In verse 7, disobedience. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? And so, we're reminded of Leviticus chapter 22, where it goes into great detail, kind of repetitively, about the requirement for sacrifices to be pure and unblemished. But they were offering blemished Sacrifices and the attitude was, who cares about the details? We're offering sacrifices. And they asked the sar- sarcastic question, in what way have we defiled you? They were rewriting God's plan to suit themselves. Sound familiar? Do we see that around us? How many ways are there to be saved? Well, if you ask God, there's one way. But if you ask men, 
there's a wide variety of choices, uh, endless possibilities on ways that we can be saved. But if you ask God, if you go to his word, you find there's one way to be saved. Yet even Christians are being sucked in uh, to this worldly way of thinking that uh, if another uh, body of, of people who uh, claim to be Christians have devised a different way to be saved, that we're going to go ahead and consider them Christians and call them Christians as well. Who cares about the details? We've got to be careful about how we throw around that word Christian and that it's actually what God considers to be a Christian and to make sure that we're looking for opportunities to teach and correct. So in verses 11 through 14, um, For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. It can be easy. Uh, he's he's uh, dealing with priests in chapter 2 now, the corrupt priests. And he goes on to say in verse, chapter 2 and verse 1, oh, now, And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and curse your blessings. I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces. Wow. The refuse of your stolen solemn feast. And one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that commandment with Levi may continue. So he's reminding them that they are priests. They are descendants of Levi's and that they're how they are to conduct themselves come from his word and they are to obey it. That my commandment, my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest, and remember today, we're all a holy priesthood. So I'm not thinking, you know, as I'm reading this, that this, oh, this applies to the preacher or the elders or the deacon. Certainly it does. Uh, But the application is to me, since we are a royal priesthood, priesthood. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge. And people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. It can be easy to get cynical about our work in the Lord. Our ministries, we call them. It can be tiring, long, tedious, sometimes dealing with people problems and sometimes dealing 
with problem people. And in chapter 2, these corrupt priests are disciplined. In verse 1 through 2, the priests were just going through the motions. It was a hypocrisy on their part. So think about how uh, God's word is being twisted when we read verse 7. For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Think about how God's word is sometimes twisted and rewritten by men today to suit themselves just like the priests offering the sacrifices. So whenever you find, uh, and I had heard this from someone else, they they said whenever you find a minister marked by cynicism, laziness, apathy, and a lack of zeal, you will also find uh, that the people that they minister to will be marked by cynicism, laziness, apathy, and a lack of zeal. But you could put something else in the blank there besides minister and the people that they minister to. You could say, uh, wherever you find a parent marked by cynicism, laziness, apathy, and a lack of zeal, you will also find a child marked by cynicism, laziness, apathy. And, and you know, we, we start off in Ephesians 4 where it says he gave some to be this, that, and the other. You could plug those in there. You could plug deacon in there. Uh, we need to plug ourselves in there. Uh, if I am marked by cynicism, laziness, apathy, and a lack of zeal, then those that I influence, if I'm the mentor and they're the protege, something like that, for example, then uh, they are going to be marked by laziness, apathy, and a lack of zeal. We have to think about the power of our influence on people and, and to the extent to which God's word is a part of that influence is what he's talking about here. The priests had performed their duties terribly. Therefore, it come, came as no surprise that their rebuke is followed up by a rebuke of the people. Um, and I know that we're about to run out of time, so I'm going to kind of jump ahead and encourage you to read the parts that we haven't covered in Malachi. The final chapter is a great prophecy on the coming of the Savior and his final message of deliverance, and he will bring healing and restoration. Of course, we know Malachi was the last of the prophets to speak before a 400-year period of silence where God was still at work and doing things uh, that we see come come in uh, as, as fruit in the New Testament. But look at their skepticism. They're saying, we've served him and served him and done his thing, and then our crops fell, we have unhappiness in our homes, we're hit with a pandemic, we have no fellowship, etc., etc., and they have an arrogance about them, blaming God for their problems. Trials and tribulations come to us all. Uh, and read the first chapter of James uh, when the trials and tribulations come. Read First Corinthians ten thirteen. Will not God will not allow us to be tempted above what we are able, but will always provide a way to escape. Read the book of Job. And so the lessons from Malachi, real quick. The first one: promises fail when we begin to rationalize. Nothing can substitute for faithful obedience, even after everything has failed. Trust God. And trust in him and always return to him. Those who serve in the leadership of the church, including all of those mentioned in Ephesians 4 plus deacons, because it doesn't mention deacons there, must watch out for cynicism uh, in themselves and others. The attitude characterized by a general distrust of others' motives and carelessness. Uh, in Malachi, it comes out in the form of marrying foreigner, foreigners and offering blemish sacrifices. 
God never deals lightly with selfishness. The prophets were not light-hearted, good-humored men. They were harsh, hard, serious, frowning, doomsday men. And they had to be with the messages that they delivered because you can't just laugh off compromise and wrong. The lesson is yours, and uh, thank you for your attention for the past 12 weeks, 11 weeks. Jaylee did one of them, so (laughs) 12 weeks. Thanks for paying attention.